UEG Talks, Gastroenterology to Go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Hello, everyone. My name is Agli. I'm the host of the UEG Talks, educational and hopefully fun dive into GI world and beyond. We are happy to have you with us for another exciting episode. And so today we're talking about all things pancreatic cystic neoplasms and the guidelines in this area. For this, of course, we're coming to Italy, and I'm very happy to introduce our guest, a pancreatic rock star with a scalpel in one hand and all the evidence in the other, Dr. Giovanni Marchegiani. Welcome to UG Talks, Giovanni. Hi, Egli. Good morning. Hi, everyone. We're so happy to have you. So let's dive in. Uh, first of all, the basics. I was thinking that all the continents have separate guidelines. For each subject, there is separate continental guideline. And this is also true for the pancreatic cystic neoplasms. But I know a, a secret that you're working on a project that's trying to harmonize the management of pancreatic cystic neoplasms across the continents. Can you tell me why exactly we need to have these globe-trotting guidelines, transcontinental ones? What's the reason? <laughs> you made the point already. So, um, well, first of all, uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, this is a an ongoing project, of course, not a project of mine, but it's a you know a global process that eventually, hopefully, you know, will provide us with a unique guidelines for these uh, entities. So far, as you said, uh, we have multiple guidelines, and uh, you know it's kind of funny to have these different policies, uh, you know, accordingly to uh, where we are, uh, either in Europe or in the U.S. or somewhere else in this beautiful world. No, I mean to go to the point. I mean the the problem with the guidelines on pancreatic neoplasm is that pretty much all of them are so far based on um, surgical series and expert opinions. So overall on a low level of evidence. And as a matter of fact, those recommendations are flawed by, let's say, these issues. At the beginning, as as back signs, they were meant to protect the uh, general population because uh, we were not really sure uh, what to do with this entity. But then as they were a little bit more aggressive back in the day, well, with adding evidence, the guidelines were modified in order to be less proactive, less surgical, as uh, indeed most of the cysts in the pancreas are not malignant. And I can say that most of them, even when they are IPMN, they will never develop a um, malignancy. So it makes sense to follow up most of them, and that's what the guidelines say. Uh, unfortunately, there are still differences between different guidelines, and it's not easy, as you pointed out, to uh, go through uh, the guidelines and to find which one to follow and how to follow. But we'll try in the next few minutes to see what we can do to make the most out of the existing guidelines looking forward to a unique, universal, global, as you said, interstellar guideline on pancreatic cystic neoplasm. 
Hey, I will hold you to the opening of the Pandora's box because you told me that uh, there are different outcomes between different guidelines. And this is very evident in the IC staff. If you compare the surveillance and management uh, recommendations, this is quite obvious. So yeah. I thought that the guidelines should be like a holy grail of medicine, you know, rigorous methodology, entire body of evidence. And uh so theoretically, the outcomes should be the same. Why are they different? Is it methodological variance, data bias? What's the reason? Yeah, I mean, again, great question. Uh, first of all, I don't have the holy grail myself, so I don't have all the answers uh, in this regard. So we might speculate that they were kind of like more aggressive to avoid to uh, leave what they were felt to be well, pancreatic cancers, but as I said, once data from the specimens became available, then it was clear that we were operating way too many pancreatic cystic neoplasm. And even IPMN, most IPMN developing in the branch duct, they are either low-grade dysplasia or what was defined back in the day intermediate grade dysplasia that doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, they were not either high-grade dysplasia, which should be the ideal goal for surgery, or invasive cancer. So the goal of the other guidelines, in particular the one drafted by wise gastroenterologists rather than just surgeons, was to avoid unrequested and harmful procedures so that the uh, new guidelines are, as I said before, way less aggressive, way less proactive to go for surgery. And let's, you know, dig a little bit deeper into that. The AGA guidelines for the first time in 2015 even started to think about possible follow-up discontinuation. So probably we're going to tackle this later on, but it's not just a matter of either operating on assist or not. Now it's basically also a matter of how to follow up a given cyst, and even for how long. So probably to go back to your question, it's a matter of adding evidence rather than just methodology. So now we're getting access to big observational series, and those are the ones providing us answers about the biology of this entity, which is key to define then the right policies for this neoplasm. So you're talking about data bias, or at least uh, data selection for the guidelines. But do you think there's also, let's say, beauty is the, in the eye of the beholder, the one who holds the knife estimates the risk differently? Yeah, or the scope, or neither of them. <laughs> so um, I was mentioning that the guidelines I mean, have been an effort, a, a true multidisciplinary one. Indeed, there are differences whether they have been drafted only by surgeons or by true multidisciplinary consensus. So I really think that in this case, the experience, uh, starting from the radiologists that are assessing how to start studying cystic neoplasm, but also uh, the GI world with the adding evidence of EUS uh, actually added value to the diagnostic. And then, of course, you also need the clinical counterparts and the surgical ones. So, yeah, let's say that those guidelines that now are have been drafted are, are a true multidisciplinary effort, as it should be in, in the modern age, at least at high-volume centers for pancreatic cystic neoplasm. Great. Cannot wait to see the end result. Yeah, me too. Okay, so 
something personal and a bit more provocative. Guidelines, in essence, are just what we know, now know on average, average person in an average situation. But how do you, as practicing clinician, extrapolate the personal risk for the patients at hand? I mean, how do you talk to the patient and explain it? And how do you incorporate the guidelines? And I do must warn you that there's a YouTube video of you admitting not to follow the guidelines in some cases. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a great point, Degle. I, I really, uh, I'm really happy that you are mentioning this. So, I mean, even with this YouTube video, I cannot, you know, lie to you. And yes, of course, I mean, I'm not following the guidelines in all cases, at least uh, during my practice, basically because I, I think it's impossible, first of all. And second, because I think it would be wrong, uh, you know, at some point. Why? Because, I mean, again, uh, in front of you, you have a person, right? You don't have a, a cyst, you don't have a mural nodule, you don't have an enhancing septa. You know, there is a, you, there is a person in front of you uh, with, uh, well, her or his will, her or his fears. And in this case, as you were mentioning, you get to know these individuals, these, these people for years and years. So you, of course, want to take into account the uh, either absolute or relative indication for surgery, but also you want to take into account, you know, what is the patient will. And uh, again, as it's a matter of finding the balance, scaling pros and cons, not just to surgery or follow-up or, or also, you know, to, to perform an endoscopic ultrasound, well, I must confess that in some part of the guidelines, you might be a little bit too blind and just applying these policies and, for example, repeat EUS every three, six months, which, of course, is not acceptable for the patient, but, of course, is also not sustainable for the healthcare system we are all living in, and that particularly after the pandemic, are showing us that, well, we are in trouble and we need to be, let's say, wiser uh, on how we use our resources. So yes, let's say it loud and clear. There are some parts of the guidelines that are not sustainable and that, once again, need to be tailored on the single patient. So I would very much respect the choice of a patient not willing to undergo surgery, whether the indication is only relative. Why? Probably I would, again, scale the risk, for example, even depending on patient's age and comorbidity. So let's say that Someone needs to be very, let's say, cautious in applying a given guideline because, as you said, you have a human being in front of you. And once again, it takes time because these, these clinics are very long because sometimes, uh, well, it, it's a tough decision. And only by talking and talking and talking to the patient, and as an Italian, of course, I like to talk a lot, you end up with the, hopefully the right decision for the right case. You talked that extensively about the patient's wishes, but I also, for the last month, I've only seen patients who are referred for follow-up EUS for the cysts, or be it uh, solid masses or cyst. And I thought that there is no indication for follow-up. The patient is not a surgical candidate. But also what I could say from the experience is that what is a surgical candidate varies a lot. For me, some patients were definitely not surgical candidates. And for the surgeon who's referring, somehow was. So there's also a lot of your personal 
attitude in this matter. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, I mean, we all know that uh, even at some conferences, you know, there is a, an evidence fight, you know, between different views. But uh, so I would like to underline, first of all, that, uh, well, the follow-up can be done basically with uh, scans, so with uh, MRI, as long that uh, the, uh, a nice MRCP uh, is there. And we should really, again, be cautious uh, when asking to perform an EUS because there needs to be a question to be answered. So whether the so-called worrisome features, according to international guidelines, are there, then US is mandatory to assess whether these worrisome features are there or if indeed the high-risk stigmata are there. So those are the true um, indications for surgery. And once again, to follow up an individual with multiple US, I don't think it's the right way to go. Of course, to repeat an US is, well, mandatory if the first one does not answer to the, all the questions. But probably the most important factor that should be taken into account is whether or not there is an evolution in the cyst during the follow-up. So I want to make this point uh, clear. Ideally, during a given follow-up for a cyst, we should always ask to ourselves while looking at the scan, is there or not a stability in the cyst? Because whenever the answer to this question is yes, then I think the patient is a good candidate to keep observation and not shifting to surgery, which would be the case whenever stability is not there, there is an evolution, something is going on, and then either or not with an EOS, possibly our choice should shift from observation to surgery. And I think this point is crucial. So evolution, stability, dynamic evaluation. <laughs> it's your movie metaphor, right? The movie metaphor, exactly. The, the picture to movie metaphor, yeah. Uh, or, or in mathematics, then you are not measuring the absolute values, you are measuring the difference. And the difference is what counts. Nice. Okay. I, I, I'm not good at mathematics. Uh, at mathematics. I mean, at high school, I was <laughs> studying ancient Latin and Greek, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I also like your metaphor. Well, I think it's the only way to depict biology. So we should really look at that. So um, waiting for the next big thing, what we're trying to uh, define is whether the biology of the cyst is stable. So that means that nothing is really going on or if there is an evolution. This is what we're trying to do, even though we're very trivial, you know, to date, because we're still lacking, uh, I would say, reliable predictor of an evolution, keeping in mind that we should operate those cysts under observation when they reach the high-grade dysplasia point, which is the ideal target for surgery, but is not so easy. When you're talking about biology, are you talking strictly about biology as a character of behavior, let's say? Or are you talking about particular biological markers? I know that in in the last European guideline, there was only brief mentioning, but there were a lot of studies since then about genetic and epigenetic markers. So yeah. where do you think is the culprit of this? Should we include those or are they not reliable at this point? We are getting there, Agle, and, and exactly, I mean, the, this is where we are, uh, you know, heading to. I would say that some good papers, some good evidence is adding regarding the role of 
biomarker, basically using, uh, well, cyst fluid. They are actually reliable. Problem is that they are not so cheap. So they need to be proven uh, as cost-effective tools. And I think that cost-effectiveness is such a big issue with pancreatic cysts because we are now learning how high is the prevalence in general population. So we really need to have something uh, like, uh, well, what has been already done for uh, colorectal cancer screening that needs to be, again, reliable, but also cheap enough to be cost-effective. And biomarkers are not that cheap so far. And they also need, as you said, to be extremely reliable because it's a matter of going for uh, a Whipple or, or not. So that is for sure what the future will bring us. But unfortunately, we're not there yet. And what we do in the clinical practice is once again, looking at uh, an MRI or a CT scan, asking for uh, an EUS, either with FNA or FMB, but still to talk about biology and to deal with reliable biomarker, as you said, probably is not what we're doing right now. We speculate we're looking at biology, but indeed probably we're not looking at the biology yet. You're right. Most probably we're looking at some kind of derivative. It's indirect measures, but we cannot pinpoint directly to what's causing it. Yeah. And you're you're talking yeah, about a survey. You buy it. Okay, good. I will sell it to you. Uh, so you you talked a lot about the surveillance and the cost effectiveness, but I had somewhat of a metaphysical question. There is a lot of evidence that, uh, or at least mounting amount of evidence that in some cases you can discontinue surveillance after five years, some cases of IPMN, let's say. But when we are talking about risk of cancer and possible death as pancreatic cancer is so aggressive, would you say that we have enough data to discontinue it? Another great question. And this is, I mean, I think what has been, you know, um, really a hot topic during the past few years, and the debate is still ongoing. So as you said, first of all, some evidence regarding ending follow-up is now adding. And why is that important? Because, let's say it again, what has been done so far is really not sustainable and is not cost-effective. Probably it has no meaning, again, for the, I will say it again, biology of this entity, because in most of the cases, they will never progress to higher dysplasia or cancer. So we are watching entities that we might define as benign with our patient just to make he or she realize what we're talking about. So the next big thing is now to understand when to possibly end follow-up. Because we also have to take it into account, and sometimes, let's say, we forget probably about that, that we all have a cancer risk just because we hold the pancreas in our body. So once again, we don't want to, you know, hyper uh, observe entities that will never progress to surgery. So we need, I think, to compare, to scare the actual risk of a given cyst with that of the pancreas. And we know that the overall risk of developing a cancer in the pancreas is age dependent. 
So I think that the key is to compare this relative risk, and we have now data sets to do that. And whenever, depending again on patient's age and also comorbidity, this risk of the cyst, I mean, is not higher than the overall population at a given threshold, probably we will find the ideal targets for follow-up discontinuation. And this turned out to be the right way to identify this candidate only once stability of the cyst once again is there. So I will never even start to talk about follow-up discontinuation if I don't see for a certain time, let's say at least five years, a stability of the cyst. So you need to define possible target for follow-up discontinuation only once stability is there. So it means only once the relative risk of this given cyst to become a cancer becomes less and less. So cyst stability, first of all, patient's age, and then relative risk, not of the cyst itself, but the overall pancreas, because that's what we're talking about. Do you incorporate the risk of your brutal pancreatic surgery? Yes, exactly, because the, the counterparts, you know, what is actually you know, on, on the other on the other end of the scale is, again, a very demanding procedure. So like it or not, I mean, still morbidity and mortality rates are high, even at high volume centers. And not just mortality, we have to keep, keep into account also the quality of life of the patient. So diabetes, uh, exocrine insufficiency, and all those, you know, factors playing a major role, in particular when we consider pancreatic surgery in younger individuals. So yes, again, these are all factors that should be taken into account when we consider, uh, again, surgery, but also would say the ending of a follow-up because it has some psychological implication, you know, the end of follow-up itself. So I, I find it difficult, honestly, to uh, to propose a, the end of a follow-up to a patient after years and years of follow-up because probably is like telling to this person, I don't care about your cyst anymore. And this <laughs> might be, you know, brutal, you know, itself. No, no, I mean, and no kidding. I mean, it, it takes a while, you know, to, to explain and not everyone would be happy, you know, about this. Because once again, when dealing with the pancreas, a lot of ethical, psychological, Google-related factors play a major <laughs> role, you know, in this. And, and of course, the guidelines cannot, by definition, tackle all these issues. But you, as a doctor, you should. So it's a, it, it's a very intriguing, it's a very interesting, you know, uh, scaling of pros and cons of your clinical decision. I must say I like it. It's like a game of odds. <laughs> yes, yes, it's true. And May the odds be in your favor. But on my point, I would like the pancreatic surgeon not to be interested in my pancreatic cyst. That would be good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say that at least we, we, we want to, uh, you know, to have an interest on your entire pancreas. Okay, so okay. And then, of course, there are also other factors to be getting to account. No, no, but you're right. You're right. Let's say it again. It's not just a matter of the cyst itself. You know, we need to take into account the entire organ. There is even... The, an entity defined concomitant pancreatic cancer that is really the factor screwing up uh, many of our, you know, predictive models because, of course, the cancer can develop also far away from the cyst 
and it has nothing to do with the cyst because it's not an invasive cancer developing within an IPMN, but it's a completely different entity. And again, I mean, this can happen. You know, back in the day, it was defined the field defect because, well, some 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 genes would have played a role in in the carcinogenetic events of the entire pancreas. But I mean, once again, whenever we follow up a cyst, we are indeed following up the entire organ, at least let's say the entire person, and not just the cyst itself. I don't want to be judgmental, but what a holistic perspective from a surgeon. Yeah, right. I mean, let, let's say not 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 just a surgeon. We need to be pancreatologists, you know, uh, when when dealing with follow up of IPMN, or how I like to define it, pancreatologist. So we really want to have a three hundred and sixty degree knowledge, you know, about this entity, not just you know hyper focusing either on the surgical candidates or those you never make it into surgery. Yes, I, I, we need to have this holistic approach. I agree with you. <laughs> Okay, I think that the conversation could go on as uh, the surveillance for pancreatic cyst, but we have to wrap up somehow. And uh, I was wondering, what's the next big thing in pancreasystology, I guess, that you await <laughs> besides the guidelines? Yeah, so uh, going back to the point, I mean, again, reliable biomarker is the next big thing. Those will have to answer a well, very important question. So not just whether this cyst is either or not a surgical candidate, but also what's going to happen to this cyst. So I imagine an, an essay uh, no, from a sample that will tell us about the evolution of this cyst at time zero. So whenever we assess for the first time this given cyst. So it's a long way to go, but there are many, many projects ongoing. And once again, this is what we are all you know, aiming at, because going back to the epidemiology data, we now know from some very nice studies, particularly those from Germany, that you know, above the age of 55, 60, almost half of the population has at least a cyst in the pancreas, which doesn't mean that all these cysts are IPMN, but once again, you know, it, it, it's like a pandemic in the pandemic. We need to tackle this and we need to be very wise because it's something common and most probably, most likely, most of these cysts are not even neoplasm. But it's, you know, it will be intriguing, you know, to keep assessing that and, uh, and to keep studying this. I personally, you know, uh, love this area. So thank you for giving me the chance to talk about this. And uh, I look forward to updating our audience in the next future. Oh, great. Thank you, Giovanni, so much. And we will try to bring you new biomarkers for Christmas. Hopefully. Yes, yes. Thank you. Okay, that's a wrap for our dive into pancreatic cystic neoplasm and the guidelines. Thank you so, so much, Giovanni, for being with us this early morning. It was a pleasure to have you with us. And for all those who tuned in, thank you for listening. We cannot wait to see what comes next. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. 